You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there to another episode of Gangland Wire. I'm here on the phone with Ori Spader. Now, if you follow the different Facebook pages that are have a mob interest, you have probably heard about his book, The Accidental You've probably heard about his book, The Accidental Gangster, from insurance salesman to mob boss of Hollywood. And we've got Ori on the phone right here now to to answer all of my questions, which I hope represent a lot of your questions. And he has uh, he has quite a quite a long career. Uh, started out as an insurance salesman, ended up being the mob boss of Hollywood. So uh, I'm anxious to to hear more about this story. And I started reading that book. I've only got a little ways into it. And it's, it's very well written, and I, I'd highly recommend it. You check on Amazon. It's got uh, almost all five star ratings. So. Uh, so welcome, Ori. I'm really happy to have you on the podcast. Good morning, Gary. Thank you very much. I'm so pleasure to be. Well, you know, I, you know, Ori, I, I have, I have one question. All of a sudden, you know, I've been a student of the mob in one way or the other since I worked the mob back in 1976-77 and always read a lot of books, read the Greenfelt Jungle uh, when I was real young and uh, uh, the Joe Valachi story and. And I've always read that, and all of a sudden, here's this guy burst on the scene, Ori Spado. Is that is that the way I pronounce that, Spado, or is it Spado? The correct pronunciation is Spado. Spado, Spado yeah. yeah. It's kind of like my name, Gary. Here we say Gary. Back east, they always call me Gary. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, uh, you know, where'd you come from, Ori? All of a sudden, you burst on the scene here. Well, you know, I've been a quiet guy all my life. You have. So I thought I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad you we're glad you did. Now, let's go all the way back. I guess might be a, a place to start, and we'll bring you through that and find out how you burst on the scene out of nowhere. Uh, you 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 know, as a young man, uh, eighteen, you joined the military like almost everybody did that didn't have some kind of deferment in the, uh, 19, what, 64, 65, something like that? 63. 63. So yeah, you spent four years in the military, in the Army? In the U.S. Army, yes. So then what did you do when you first got out of the military? Well, when I first got out of the military, my, my dad was ill, and so I went back. I wanted to stay in California. And uh, it's in the book. I was engaged to a uh, a gal here in Beverly Hills, actually. But her father was against the marriage because she was Jewish and I was Italian. And he was very well-to-do. So I says, I cannot provide the kind of life that she was accustomed to. I mean, here I was. I was 21 years old. I had a job lined up with Pan American Airlines here in Los Angeles. I told her to go back home. And then I thought about it. My dad was ill, and I took my last flight that I was able to with my uniform to fly. I think it was $100. I can't remember. And I flew back home, and my dad uh, told me I should have stayed in California. I had him get me a job at Revere Copper and Brass, and then I ended up 
becoming an agent for the Prudential Insurance Company. And it was something that became very natural for me. I was a good salesman. And, hell, in the late 60s, early 70s, I was making $500 a week, which was a lot of money, but I, I didn't know it was a lot of money. I didn't know about the economy and all that. But I did very, very well and ended up getting my own business and uh, my own agency. I did extremely well with it. I was servicing automobile dealers on credit life and accident health. And I was actually the pioneer in the state of New York in what's now today called the after-sale business in automobile dealers, which I kind of regret it because it's a pain (laughs) to fuck to buy a car today. (laughs) You know, know, uh, Ori, I got to tell you, uh, you know, I I practiced law for about the last uh, 15 years after I retired from the police department, and a lot of my business was from people who were cheated, felt like they'd been cheated by a car dealer. <laughs> and, and that, that aftermarket, uh, those aftermarket sales things that people would get, those uh, 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 the gap insurance, they, they would sell this stuff even when they didn't need it, uh, especially poor people at the buy here, pay here. But it's a it's a huge profit center for, for auto dealers is uh, the, the gap insurance and the uh, uh, warranty, the uh, it's not really a warranty. It's like an insurance policy you buy to get your car fixed after the warranty runs out. But those those things, and they're a huge profit center, and and those salesmen will slip those in on people lots of times. So it's only going to cost you three cents a month more, twenty yeah. cents more, and they they break it in such little denomination that it don't seem like a lot to you. Right. But back in those days, I was able to walk into a car dealership and say. I'll teach your man how to sell a car at cost, and you will still gross two thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah I, I, I tell you what, I got a couple of the older lawyers that brought me into that business, and, and really they got into doing class action suits on uh, finance companies and things like that later on, and I kept I kept doing the small cases for them. I got to tell that I met the guy that started that. <laughs> <laughs> that business of post-market <laughs> sales for uh, uh, car dealers. Uh, <laughs> this is amazing, Ori. <laughs> so uh, you, how did you, was it through the car dealers you ended up making some mob connections? You started out making some mob connections uh, in the insurance business. How did that happen? What happened was a very dear friend of mine, and I ran in my office above him, Frank Russo. Frank Russo was a lawyer, but his father was the boss in upstate New York. And my grandfather, who passed away before I was born, was a captain under him. Yeah. So, and we're Calabrese from Calabria. Mm hmm. And then to Frank Russo, I started going to New York with him all the time, to the Warwick Hotel, and the first gentleman I ever met was Frank Costello. Oh, really? So tell me about that, uh, the Prime Minister. Tell me about what, what's the story behind meeting Frank Costello. That's a great one. Yeah, well, we met Frank twice at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. 
And I'm going to tell you, the guy was a gentleman. And I remember, I mean, my head was spinning looking at every girl going around. And then Frank says, and he told me to call him Uncle Frank. And he said, I'm going to tell you something, young man. He says, be a gentleman. Always be a gentleman. And he was right. And I think I always carried that, carried myself that way, being a gentleman. Good advice. And then from from there, I, I met Russell Buffalino. We had lunch. And then when uh, Russell got arrested out of Pennsylvania, they were transporting him. He was, uh, they had him for a couple of days at, at the jail outside of Rome in the Riskini, uh, at the sheriff's. And what we had, the political call and everything back in those days in upstate New York. So me and Frank would bring them pasta, meatballs, you know, all sorts of Italian meals to the prison. Yeah, just like you, just like you see in the movies, huh? The the uh, mob guys have their own little section, and uh, they get all they get their own food in, and they cook back in there. Somebody brings them really good food. I'm gonna tell you something. When I was in prison, I had some of the best food you couldn't get on the streets. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. But anyway, then I met him, and then uh, when I got in trouble with my insurance agency, I was trying to sell it, and. Uh, I flew to New Orleans, and I met with Carlo Marcello. Did, did Frank wire you up with that down there? Did Frank wire you up with, uh, set you up with that intro, or did you have another connection to that? Frank did. It was until 1978. Uh, back in the auto deal, I was a distributor for Polyglyco. Polyglyco, uh, I don't know if you remember, no need to sign your car again, guaranteed for three years. And every time you turn on your TV somewhere in the country, you see a red. Uh, no, it was a paint sealant. A uh, sealant, okay. Yeah, I, I remember those ads. So, so you were nice. If you adhere to the warranty, you never had to shine your yeah. car again. Okay. Actually, did work. And then we did the undercoating. We did the fabric protection. And we had everything that you needed for a car, including warranties. But the warranties were a big failure. Ooh. Right, right, all that, all that post, post sales, sales stuff, stuff that, they, that the, the sales, sales manager gets you, like you said, to sell a car at, at cost and still, and still make a lot, lot of money on it. The sales, sales manager gets you back, gets you back, back in that real hammer Tyson, who was the founder and the president of the company, he and I became close friends, and he started calling me, telling me he was getting death threats. <laughs> and I said, Walter, look at it. I said, nobody's going to call you and tell you they're going to kill you. I said, there's got to be some bullshit. So then he wanted me to go fly back to New York. I was in Florida by this time. He wanted me to fly back to Florida, out to New York, to close Victor Potomkin, who was a very large Cadillac dealer. And we went back, and we closed him, and then we all went to Club 21 in New York for lunch. When Walter went to call his office, and he comes back white as a ghost, and Walter always called me, kid. He says, kid, I know you're wired in. He says, this is serious. Stay overnight. Find out. I said, okay. So I called Frank Russo. Frank had me call Lou Perry, who was another friend of ours. Lou was a casting director with offices on 57th Street. Lou is actually the guy that discovered D. Martin, Jerry Lewis. Called him. 
He called me back. He says, I'm picking you up at your hotel at 7. 7 o'clock he came and brought me to a restaurant on 2nd Avenue, Trattatoria Siciliano. And I walked in that restaurant and I just was able to analyze everything, who was who. I just always had a knack for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I could tell who's sitting here, who's at the bar, and so forth. And then there was a gentleman named Sonny Franchise. Yeah, Sonny uh, Franchise just died. He just passed away at 103 right. years old. Really? The oldest living gangster for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And he was with his wife, his son Johnny, his daughter Tina, and his daughter Gia. I sat next to him, we whispered, I explained to him, I gave him my phone number in my office in upstate New York and my uh, number in Florida. He says he would look into it. And so we had dinner. I ate a fish and I got allergic to it. Next thing you know, I had, oh my God, I was on the toilet, I'm uh, I'm on the street on 2nd Avenue vomiting. And he had two guys take me to the hospital, Red Krabby and Johnny Irish, Johnny Matera. And I was passed out. The next thing I know, I'm laying down in a room in the hospital, and the doctor's asking them, what's my name? And he's going, just get him fixed up. You don't need to know his name. What's your name? Doc, you ain't getting our name. Just get him fixed up. The news just say they fed me intravenously. I came back. And Sonny did what he said he would do. But what happened, I was with my gal who became my second wife. I took two weeks to drive back from Florida to New York. And Sonny was calling, and every time I called my office to see any messages, my secretary was telling me, some guy calls every morning, asks for you. When I say you're not here, I ask him his name, he hangs up. Huh. I didn't know who the hell is that. So I was got to Utica, and I was checking into the Ramada Inn. I had a flight from my girlfriend to fly back to San Francisco the next day. And the phone is ringing. In the room at the room I'm in. Oh, here I am. I'm looking at the door, man. I'm looking at my girl. I'm thinking that that phone is ringing for whoever was in the room before me. And it kept ringing and ringing. So finally I answer it, and it was a friend of mine, Tommy. He said, where the hell you been? I said, how the hell you know where I'm at? He said, don't worry about that. You got to call Frank. You got to be in New York Monday. I called Frank, and he said, yeah, we got to be there, and drove to New York. We drove there Sunday night, and I met with Sonny Franchese. So we had to go to the Russian Tea Room. Sat down with Sonny, and as it so happened, Walter was at a distributor meeting at the New York Hilton, and Sonny had Michael Franchise with him. Now, Michael, I'm sure you all heard about Michael Franchise. Yeah, he's all over the place <laughs> right now. 
born-again Christian, supposedly. Yeah. He made hundreds of millions of dollars in the gasoline tax business. I had to go get Walter right off the stage of the meeting, bring him there. He sat next to me. Sonny, Sonny's right across from me, Michael next to him. Frank Perry and Frank, uh, Lou Perry and Frank Russo. And this is before the Russian Tea Room opened. The first booth when you walked in the Russian Tea Room was on the left was Sonny Frank Tate. On the right was Jacqueline Kennedy's. He was a he was a celebrity gangster before we knew there were celebrity gangsters, wasn't he? That's right. The meeting came out in our favor. And I think probably since then Michael's never liked me, which I really don't care. When we last walked out of the Russian tea room, Sonny grabbed me, walked me to the corner of fifty seventh and Broadway, and he says, Kid, I like you, you got a lot of balls. He says, anywhere you go, you tell people you're with me, you have a problem. Mm. He says, and I want you and your family to come to my home for Christmas. And that's how I became friends for over 40 years with Sonny Franchise. Interesting, because he was, you know, he was kind of a more a progressive, forward-thinking gangster. He wasn't just the old school, you know, out of the, couldn't hardly get out of the prohibition thinking gangster you know do have get a cruise to do home invasions and jewelry robberies and take a piece of that action he was always more sophisticated and and get into business crime long before the others did uh, i know he got into a uh, late in his career got into a telephone cramming scheme because uh, they had a connection right here in kansas city so uh and, and then his son michael got into that that gas tax scam that was a really sophisticated uh, uh, scam that that they made millions out of that. So those franchises, they they were they were able to progress beyond prohibition and and really beyond gambling in the usual rackets to to make some real money. I'm sure. You know, he owned uh, a deep throat the movie. Uh, yeah, uh, he was involved in record uh, record companies. Did, did he help you get established out there in Hollywood? Then you you're going to end up in Hollywood. You no, it was. Once again, with my agency, I wanted to grow my agency. You know, insurance companies are licensed in each state. I came up with a solution on how to go national with my company, with the Ori Agency. I needed $12 million. Frank Russo loved the idea. He was close friends with uh, Dino De Laurentiis, Ralph Serpe, Carlo Ponte. And they were filming the Brinks job in Boston. So we drove down to Boston, met with Ralph Serpe, John Cassavetti was there, uh, Peter Falk. I met Josh Mappy. We had dinner with him, one of the guys who actually was one of the robbers in the Brinks job. Ralph loved the idea. He said, Dino will love it. And next thing you know, we flew out here, met with Dino, went downtown L.A. Motor. Showed him how it worked. It was raising the money. And at the same time that I'm flying all around the freaking country, my top guy who was uh, making a hundred grand a year with me, you got to measure how much a hundred grand a year oh, was yeah. in those Back days. Then. Right. All right. And plus, I, you know, he had a new Lincoln every year to drive, which I paid for. And he found out about a deal that I had with the insurance company. It was out of Michigan. And when he found out about that, he tried to take over my agency, this bastard. Hmm. By threatening the insurance company 
that if they didn't give him my agency, he would report them to the New York State Insurance Department. Needless to say, he didn't get the business. The insurance company gave me a couple of weeks to try to come up. I was out of trust, $385,000, which ultimately became an indictment after four and a half years, a mail fraud indictment. So, so by out of trust, explain that to, to me and, and the other folks listening out there. I kind of know what it means, but explain what that means when you get out of trust with an insurance company. And when an insurance company had what they would consider a golden agent, somebody who was producing a lot, but didn't really have the money. Now, I was, I was a good salesman. I was able to establish a good sales force, and I was doing over $3 million a year for the insurance company. That's in dollars, okay? $3 million a year, which is quite a bit. They also had another agent who wrote the credit life in A&H in the banks. I didn't do the bank. I did automobile dealer. They allowed me to use the premiums to build my business. So I was always one month behind in premiums, which was... $385,000. But they panicked, and it became an indictment. I lost my license, and it became a court case in Syracuse, New York. And I ended up, luckily, I got five years probation on that deal. But losing my license, now I had to resort to other things to make a living. And from my experience, I moved out here to California, and I met with Dino, and, you know, I, by that time I knew people in Hollywood. And I had a knack for sitting down with people and correcting problems, handling disputes, no matter what kind. I did it nicely. I did it quietly. So I became known as a Hollywood fixer. And that was my entree into Hollywood. And I've been here ever since. Interesting. Tell us, uh, tell, tell them myself and, and the listeners out there a few stories like about Frank Sinatra and, and some of the different people you met uh, along the way. Because uh, I understand that you, you were, had drinks and cigars and, and smoked and joked, as we say, with some of the best out there. Well, we know Frank, Frank Sinatra, of course, everybody knows, had a home in Palm Springs. Frank was also a big, heavy gambler. Yeah. And he could never tell his wife what he lost. One time, Frank lost a half a million dollars. I know to the average for a half a million dollars. Man. And he couldn't go to his wife and say, I got to pay these guys a half a million. So who do you think gave him the half a million dollars? <laughs> I don't know. Where would you get that back? This is 1970s, too. That was like a million and a half today or more. Dean Martin gave it to him. Dean Martin. Oh, wow. Yeah, Dean Martin loaned him money. He paid Dean back. Yeah. And then we, uh, Frank owned part of a restaurant called Mateo's on Westwood Boulevard. And it was the restaurant to be at on Sunday evenings. And Ronald Reagan, where I sat and uh, I was with this lady, and he always come, uh, come in and holding a rally and put his hand, how you doing, young man? <laughs> <laughs> Frank and I would sit at the bar and smoke, and he would bitch about, oh, I can't smoke, my wife won't let me. And uh, we had a lot of conversations. Uh, of course, you know, 
Frank uh, happened to also know Sonny Frank Chase uh, for a long time. So we we had a lot of common denominators, and we just got along nice. And I remember one night we were leaving and waiting for the valet to get our car. Frank gives the valet guy $200, a tip. And he asked the guy, what's the biggest tip you ever got before? The guy says, $100, sir. So Frank said, here's 200 <laughs> And then Frank said, who gave you that $100? You did, sir. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> So you're you're kind of you're a fixer out there. If somebody has a problem, you'll move in. Now, would you like a private contractor? They would uh, people would uh, would get hold of you and say, you know, I've got I've got this problem and and uh, I need some help and and they give you money or uh, how did that work or were you working for somebody else? No, and the agents, the studios, uh, celebrities. Normally, it would be the agencies or the studios that would call me. Uh, where something was going to be, could have created into a big problem. Sometimes it would be a divorce where I had to sit down with the husband and wife or two famous people and, and keep it a quiet thing and be okay. a little peaceful so that it don't harm the studios. I was just able to do things naturally, sensibly, just by talking with people, my looks, my voice would definitely benefit to me, but I did it all without a gun. Now, Ori, uh, uh, tell the truth here now. Did you ever, uh, when you're trying to settle something and somebody is uh, is not wanting to, uh, uh, and they're being hard on the deal, or they're not wanting to compromise, did you ever pull up, mention some of your organized crime connections just in passing? Uh, I know how that works. You say, you know, I, I know, you know, this... This guy, yeah, I, I know Tony Splatro. Maybe you heard of him, uh, the aunt out of uh, Las Vegas, or I know uh, Sonny Francese in, in New York. You know, uh, surely we can work something out. Do you ever pull that uh, stick out of you? I never had to do it. Never. I, I would never drop a name like that. There was a time in San Francisco, and San Francisco is. You know, it's a big city to most people, but you live there. It's seven miles by seven miles. Everybody knew me no matter where I went. I was making a lot of moves uh, to make money. And I had a place on Union Street in a marina area called Little Henry's, which was like my home where I met with everybody. And I remember a Saturday night I walked in and my guys were there and they're nervous as all shit. And they says, the guys, the Italian guys from North Beach wanted to see me. And they wanted to see me that night. And I never forget, it was a Saturday night. They said, sure, you can't go, they might do this. I said, I'm going. We go see what the freak these guys want. So I went to a restaurant in North Beach. And when I got to the door, I said who I was. They escorted me to the kitchen where there were four guys at a table, older guys. A lot of my meetings in restaurants, back in New York, Connecticut, here, when you meet with these guys, normally we have a table in the kitchen, away from everybody. 
Well, I'm there, and these guys are talking about, you know, they knew when I was in town, this and that, and I'm making these moves. At this time, I was doing some gambling, and my creative idea was to do it on, you know, have a big semi-truck and have a gambling operation in it moving around town. Yeah. So it would be in different locations all the time. And they heard about that there, and they said, now you're getting in our territory and this and that. And I knew I was in serious trouble with them, you know what I mean? I'm going to have to make a deal. I'm going to have to pay. I'm going to have to do something. Until one of them says, you got to give us a name. Who are you with? Are you connected to anybody? And that was the one name. I used the name Sonny Franchise. And when I dropped that name, it was like the sun came out. <laughs> they said, you're with Sonny? You do anything in this town you want. Cool. Yeah, Sonny had a great rep, no matter anywhere in the country. What he did, why he did, and who he did it for, he took it to the grave with him two weeks ago. Yeah, he did. So let's uh, uh, let's do one more story. Tell tell us a little bit about how you ended up going to the penitentiary uh, there late in life uh, uh, after you've uh, you've been able to uh, operate all those years and and finally somebody catches up with you. I, I know that you were on the uh, FBI's radar. You were on the radar of the uh, LAPD uh, organized crime squad, uh, the gang squad. You had been on their radar, so how did you end up going to the penitentiary? Well, you know, it was 1997. I stole cable boxes out of the L.A. City Jail. What a hell of a scheme. I tell you, people ask me, what's the craziest thing you ever did? I said, it's Robin in L.A. City Jail. It was <laughs> really? amazing. I was just waiting for this one. <laughs> how do you do that? <laughs> You gotta be a freaking nut job. <laughs> but I was very quite creative in it because it was a closed down jail. The police academy was across the LA River right from it. I had my lookout guys at the police academy on motorcycles. And we uh we were managed to get some boxes the first night. And then I had the guys that were buying, and they were in town with a briefcase full of cash, selected one, and they had a warehouse selected near the airport here. I had nothing to do with the transportation of these things. It was only my to get a transfer from the LA City Jail to the warehouse here in Los Angeles. So I did no interstate transportation. But the agents were trying to get me to become an informant, which I refused to. And then one agent by the name of Scott Garriola in 1997, he looked at me and he said, I'm going to see the day that you are chained, shackled, put on con air, and brought to Brooklyn. And I'm saying, you know, I got, you know, I thought, Brooklyn, this guy's full of shit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 1997. And I'd like to tell for all, all your people who, who listen to your show, the FBI keeps their word. <laughs> yeah. In 2008, 
He made it a reality. Yes. <laughs> and I was indicted along with 14 others on RICO charges in Brooklyn, New York. And yes, I was chained, shackled, put on con air, and brought to Brooklyn. And I ended up serving 62 months in prison. So now that was a RICO indictment, uh, racketeer influence and corrupt organizations. Now, what uh, what was the organization? What, what were some? What was the predicate offenses? They had some predicate offenses in their yeah, cable well, boxes. You know, we, our indictment. We had a lot of guys there with several murder charges, uh, including one cop. And my predicate acts was distribution of cocaine and a home invasion robbery. Uh, the cocaine distribution was actually set up by an informant because I never dealt cocaine and I never would. And that's in my book, The Accidental Gangster. And it's a very interesting story. I explain how the federal government creates crime with a conspiracy. You know, having a conspiracy charge is one thing, but now when you got a racketeering conspiracy. Now you're at odds that you're almost not going to beat. Almost impossible to beat RICO charges. Uh, now, on my indictment, the guys beat the murder charges. They got convicted of RICO. Right. You can you can beat the predicate offense and still get convicted of the conspiracy. Yeah. There's one guy got 50 years on the conspiracy. 50. Ori, this is this has been great. Now, folks, I I, I want you to get out there and and get this book. The AccidentalGangster.com is the website. It's on Amazon. It's on Kindle. It's a, a audio version. And, and you, we're not going to give away any more stories out of that book because there's there's great stories in the book. And and now you see where Ori came from and and who he was involved with. And and if you like mob history in the United States and a really interesting story. You need to get this book, The Accidental Gangster. And there's quite a few things on his website, too, so go take a look at that. Uh, Ori, you got any final words here for uh, for people that are listening? Uh, let me tell you one story first, Ori. You know, you talk about what the federal government can do. I, I got this uh, friend of mine that I actually ran the surveillance on him when he ended up going to the federal penitentiary back in 1990s. And, and he came out, he turned his life around, and, and we've become friends. And and so we're talking, and he said, when I in, was in the penitentiary, he said, when I hear these younger guys say they can't do that, he said, I just go up to them and, and say, you know, they can do that. Don't ever say they can't do that. They can do that. So uh, I think you learned uh, they can do that, correct? That's absolutely correct. And is there anything people ask me, what do I want to convey from my book? If, and I know a lot of people love stories about gangsters, but you can read about my life and the glamorous things I've done in my life. Trust me, folks, it's not glamour. And if I could help by one person reading my book, if I could avoid him getting in a gang or getting involved in a life of organized crime, then by all means, my, writing my book was well worth it. I don't need to show off a car, apartment, a house, okay? Remember that your family is the most important thing in life. Your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters, your children. That's where you should put your efforts. 
and just do a legitimate job, stay out of the life. Otherwise, you're going to end up in prison. And I'm talking to a lot of guys right now from all over the country who've been to prison who want to change their life. I'm going to tell you it's not easy when you're a felon. When you got that felon, that felon stays with you until the day you die. Even if the president gave you a pardon, you are still a felon. He cannot change that. So it's difficult getting a job. It's difficult making an entree back into life. If I could help anybody avoid it, by all means, anybody want any advice, I'm on Facebook. I give a lot of people advice. Prison's not a great place. Oh, it was okay for me. I was respected. But it's not a place you want to be. All right. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I, I forgot to mention that. You got the Ori Spado um, Facebook page, too. So get on that and, and, and get to know Ori. And, and he has some great advice there, folks. As, as you most of you all know, you all know that... I spent my life in law enforcement and, and on the other side and, and helped put a lot of people in jail like that. And, and I never met one that, <laughs> that said that was a positive experience. And I, I tell you what, Ori, I used to do these surveillances with the feds. We worked with them a lot. I was local, but we worked with the feds a lot. And, and you'd be following this guy around and, and he, I'd think, you know, this guy has no idea, no idea the entire weight of the federal government and huge resources are ready to come down on top of him and and totally destroy his life forever it's you know and and it's all for a little bit of money and and some many times not that much money there's very few of those great big scores and people make and and uh, you know they end up earning for the time they spend in the penitentiary they end up earning about 10 cents an hour uh, for every hour they spent doing that big score as my friend uh, said when, when he was in the penitentiary, again, I'll say one more story that, that he used to say is when somebody would be talking about planning another crime or trying to involve him and when they get out, they'd do this and do that because they knew he, he had some skills. This dude's got skills and, and uh, he'd say, you know, you haven't done enough time yet. When you've done enough time, you won't be talking that dry. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, these, are, these are words of wisdom from Ori Spado. Ori, I really appreciate you coming on the show here and, and uh, Telling the listeners, we call them wiretappers, telling the wiretappers out there a little bit about uh, what your life was like and, and uh, the, kind of the, uh, what the fruits of your labor ended up. Uh, and and they, were, they were kind of bitter fruit by the end. So uh, you And see, a guy like you and many, I, I had another guy that was common informant, but he, was a, he had a little auto theft ring, but he made a ton of money and he was like organized. He had, uh, you know, one guy do this, one guy do that, one guy do this, and and he was uh, slick. He he would like when he'd come around town where people would see him, he would wear old overalls and an old crappy car. When he'd go out of town, then he'd spend his money. He he'd have a real low low key right lifestyle here in Kansas City. But when he'd go on a vacation, he'd get he'd rent a Rolls Royce and and you know wear really nice clothes and and go to the nicest places and. And I told him once, I said, you know, dude, if you just take all that stuff, all that organizational ability and that sales ability you've got and that ability to get people to do what you want them to do into a legitimate organization, you could do well. 
And, and he just like, I don't know, he looked at me like, well, what do you mean, dude? <laughs> I mean, I like this life as a gangster. So, you know, and he ended up doing his bit in the federal penitentiary system. So, Well, people don't realize, but, you no, know, they don't. Just, only the FBI alone. You're talking about over 36,000 employees of the FBI. Yep. You're talking about people, they got the tools, the resources. Today, they don't have to leave their office, and they know where you're at and what you're <laughs> I saying. Know. I know. <laughs> I, had a, I had a guy, I was a policeman I was talking to that's still working the thing, and I said something about some guy. He said, oh, he said, you want to see where he is right now? And he pulls up his cell phone and, and opens up his little GPS thing, and, and there's a guy's car. We know where he's sitting at right now. We were, like, off in some restaurant somewhere, so... <laughs> I don't know how anybody gets away with anything anymore, but, but they do. And, uh, you know, I was talking to a young man in New York uh, last night that now is looking to me for advice. I, I told him, same thing I just told your listener. You have a wife, you have two children, and you got a job. Do that there. Forget about the other thing. He wanted to do something. A guy owed him twelve hundred dollars. I says, "Is twelve hundred dollars worth?" Because more than likely, this guy is going to call the police on you. I said, "Then you're going to be in jail, and then you're going to have to pay a lawyer. All right, even if it's a light charge, you're probably going to look at a ten thousand dollar retainer." Yep, that's right. I said, is it worth it for $1,200? <laughs> I said, forget about it. Continue. Take care of your family. Think positive and do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Okay, Ori, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm really, uh, really grateful you to come on, and, and let's hope that uh, uh, this podcast helps change at least one life and and your book will will change more than one and and i just i'll be happy if if one person i'll never know but if one person out there listens to this and and changes it around gets hold of you maybe or for whatever whatever he changes their life around uh, i'll i'll be grateful and i appreciate you coming on here and i appreciate it very much okay have a wonderful right. day you too Bye-bye. Well, folks, that was ori spader author of the accidental gangster with a really interesting story i thought um do my public service announcement here. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be connected to your time in service and it's PTSD, uh, call the local vet center. You're going to have one in your area wherever you are or the local VA hospital if you're in a more metropolitan area. Uh, there's also a national hotline, uh, 800-273-8255. Be sure and press 1 if you're a veteran. This is kind of a, a hotline for all PTSD people. Uh, and for a lot of different resources to learn more about symptoms and, and uh, treatments, uh, go to the VA's website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Uh, I want to do a shout out to uh, a mutual friend. I forgot to do this. A mutual friend of myself and Ori's, uh, Michael McCollum. He's a former Hells Angels from the Chicago area and was connected to the outfit in a way, and, and I'm not sure exactly how far we're going to do a podcast with him in the, in the future as, as he's getting a book ready to go, and he's doing it with a, another mutual friend of, of Ori's and mine and, and Michael's is uh, Dennis Griffin, a um, 
ex-copper from uh, back in New York that's uh, written a whole lot of true crime books, Denny, Denny Griffin, uh, look him up on Facebook. He's got a lot going on. He's written a lot of, he's written what, he's helped co-write three books with Frank Collada. He, he wrote a, you know, really when I started into doing my, uh, when I started out to do my movie on the uh, skimming from Las Vegas casinos, Gangland Wires, my original documentary, tells all about the skimming from Vegas casinos. First book I found was uh, Battle for Las Vegas by Dennis Griffin. And then I got hold of Denny and and he was real generous. He lined me up with people out in Las Vegas to interview uh, for the uh, documentary. And and he's uh, he's connected. To, he's helped Ori with his work, and he's and he's working real close, co-authoring this book with this uh, Michael McCollum, who's a mutual friend. So I appreciate all you listeners out there. I'm not going to go into anything else. Don't forget, I've got you know you, you know I've got my stuff, my Venmo app, and and all the stuff I've got to for sale on my website, or you make a donation. Uh, I don't need to go into any of that anymore. I get tired of doing that sometimes. Wiretappers. So all I got to say is uh, hasta luego, as we say down south of the border. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. <laughs> <laughs>